Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Tech Trailblazers Tech on Fire video stroke podcast. My name's Rose Ross and I'm the founder and chief trailblazer at the Tech Trailblazers. And I'm delighted to be with John Collins, who's an analyst with Gigone and is joining us to talk about DevOps. Hello, John, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. Uh, long time no speak, Rose. Good to speak to you. Yeah, definitely, definitely been a while but then um we usually bump into each other at things like cloud camp and stuff like that in many so unfortunately not been an opportunity over the last year or so so um i thought it'd be great for people as we were just discussing earlier who somehow don't know you to find out a little bit about john um so who are you and where'd you come from john collins well uh yeah how far back i mean uh, so I, th- I guess the most relevant to this uh, conversation is I, I did actually start as a programmer, thirty odd years ago, which is which is quite scary, uh, and then um, I we I was very very lucky, completely lucky. I didn't had no idea at the time this was a graduate scheme, but I I joined a a little company which happened to be doing most things right when it came to software process and so on, and it was a, a subsidiary of Philips. We were building CAD systems. And it was it was a tight ship. We were we were out in the countryside uh, in port cabins it, using HP Apollo workstations. Um, but it it was uh, yeah, quality was high. We had configuration management. We were testing things. We were um, generally we were building on a platform. And uh, and I read a book called Peopleware back then by uh, Tom DeMarco and Timothy Lister. You're getting the full spiel here. And Ooh, and it was all about it was all about how to do software rights. Um, and it fits in that kind of, you know, all the, the books like the mythical man month and, and those sorts of things. It was, it was one of that genre. And, um, and I read it and I thought, well, that's all obvious, but it's what people are doing anyway. So why, why write a book like that? Um, and then I went to another company, um, which a subsidiary of Alcatel and where we were, it seemed like every single thing that they said, don't do it that way, uh, was, was, was done uh, at Alcatel. And I ended up running the, uh, software tools and the development environments uh, for, for uh, it was started as about 35 developers and ended up as hundreds of developers and hundreds of systems and base bases and all kinds of things that and networks that I had to run and I ended up with a team of 10 people um, and lots of stress um, but it was it was just fascinating so largely I think um, that that's where I've come from and I've worked as an analyst as a writer in, in tech over the years as a consultant but interestingly with DevOps, I've kind of, the whole thing's come full circle. So I've gone back to the roots of, uh, of, uh, what, what I spent most of my hands-on career doing. And, uh, I guess the first thing that I had to worry about when I started covering DevOps about two, two or three years ago was, um, I'm going to get found out. Of course, the world's completely new. It's all moved on. It's all microservices now, isn't it? And everyone's cool and everyone's young and, um, there's. I'm going to have nothing to add. Uh, and then I started to find some chinks in the armor and I realized that a lot of the things that we were trying to fix back then were still problems now. Um, and just because it's got a fancy umbrella title on it, um, like DevOps or Infinity Loops or CICD or, or whatever it happens to be, there's still a lot of work to be done, which which is my starting point for, for the research. So, so I, I did put a, a report together called something like 
scaling DevOps in the enterprise. It had a you know, French pants title like that. But it, essentially what I meant by that was, here's all the things that if you don't do them, you're always going to struggle to do DevOps at scale. And th th that was based on loads and loads of interviews, finding out what people were kind of get it, finding easy these days. And there's so much very different to, to what it was back then, uh, like building on open source platforms, the cloud, et cetera. But there's still a lot of things that, that people are really struggling with. So so that's kind of set my stall out for, for DevOps, really. Cool. Well, I mean, that's one of the things is the Tech on Fire is going to look at, because we're celebrating our 10th edition, so we're having a sort of a 10, looking back over the last 10 years and looking forward over the next decade. Um, so can you give us a little insight into some of those challenges? And that will probably sort of go nicely into that whole startup conversation because the startup world tends to be where people go, oh, there's a problem. I'd like to fix that. Mm. And I think I could build a business out of that. Yeah, uh, and that that's so true and particularly true in the world of software development because mm. it, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. The world of software development is full of developers. So when they spot something that they think needs fixing, they build something. It, yeah, if you're in the world of enterprise apps, you wouldn't kind of create another enterprise app on the fly in order to, or you know, the world of storage, you don't suddenly go out and get the soldering iron out and build your own storage. Whereas de yeah, the developer world is full of programmers that are thinking, I can do, I can fix that, I, I need to sort that out. And they're building front ends, they're building tooling and so on. Um, so the, that is a blessing and a curse. I think the challenges for DevOps are in part created by that in that when we look at the the kind of devops landscape if you like there's literally hundreds of companies there's 248 at least um Man. smaller larger companies that are all doing something that would fit under the umbrella of what we might call devops um and then there's a whole bunch of companies that don't fit under that umbrella and have got no intention. They're still quite happy talking about application lifecycle management or, or um, um, yeah, requirements management or, or you know, the old school uh, terminology or stuff that just doesn't fit in, in that world. So, so uh, we, we do have a problem of fragmentation in, in the tooling, but then also the, the fragmentation notion is the same word can be applied to what we see in the enterprise. Uh, I remember uh, one big bank saying, you know, we, we've got, we've got 5,000 pipelines, software development pipelines. That's because we've got 5,000 products that we're building and each one has a different pipeline. So literally the way that we build each one is unique. And, uh, one of the organizations we're working with at the moment, they're, they're trying really hard to work out how to create common frameworks and, and standards that mean that they're not maintained. No, no company wants to be the best in the world, apart from uh, software vendors. They don't want to be, the, no big bank wants to be the best in the world at software pipelines. That's not what they're there for. Um, speaking mm. to uh, an online travel organization, they said, we want to be famous for brilliant travel experiences. We don't want to be famous for brilliant network engineering. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's the same with this. It, so a, a significant challenge is there's no standards. I I kind of take it off to the, the hyperbole, but there's no standards. There's no there's no common frameworks. 
anything goes. It's very chaotic environments. And that's that's obviously overstating it, but I think realistically where we are with all of this DevOps stuff is there's loads of highly successful smaller projects. Hmm. Um, there's a very small number of highly successful major projects and everyone automatically goes to the Netflixes and, you know, um, quoting the, these massively successful uh, cloud-first organizations, you know, Twitter and uh, Spotify and so on. But getting from, uh, if you're at any organization that isn't cloud native and you're looking to get from small levels of success, pockets of success, to turning your organization into a digital-first um, cloud native, et cetera, yada, yada. Mm. There's just this big gap without knowledge in it. it. It's a massive gulf and, and you've got to cross that gulf yourself at the moment. There's no set agreed standard way of getting you from those proof of concepts that have been brilliant to, um, everything working brilliantly and you being a digital first company. That's the problem. So how how are startups going to over the next 10 years be part of solving those problems um well crystal ball out well well i i mean every challenge is an opportunity in disguise right so mm. it's uh, and the disguise is the, the opportunity isn't particularly well hidden it, it it's sitting right out there um uh, blindingly obvious, I think. Mm. The the nature of how we build applications is continuing to fragment. And that's in part the way that um, it's almost Sorcerer's Apprentice stuff. I know that gets overquoted, including by me, but just because you can create something new, that doesn't mean you should, but people still are. So yeah, mm. there's, there's a there's new platforms appearing all the time. There's new vendors appearing all the time, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, we're so the alternative to um, chaos is order. Mm. And so the opportunity is how do we order this? And uh, that that's the kind of massive um, uh, overstatement as well. But the the tools that we're currently giving people are acting at a certain level. They're, they're helping people build things. And what they're not doing is recognizing that we don't just need builders here. We need architects, we need planners, we need managers, et cetera, et cetera. And the tools available to those people, the other stakeholders are lacking. So there's two things you can do. Either there's possibly three things you can do because AI is always the kind of third thing that everyone mentions, but hmm. either you can make it much, much simpler or you can provide better management, uh, by much, much simpler. Either you take away the fact that things are so complex and, and so one big trend that we're seeing is low code, no code, all of that kind of hmm. stuff. Uh, even RPA, yeah. robotic process automation, um, and some of the platforms, everyone Salesforce service now on end of the scale, Appian. Uh, um, Mendix, the the the, the pure play low code providers, etc. They're just making it easier to build things, um, and therefore, it if it's making it easier to build things, it's also easier to manage building things. Um, that that's one doesn't necessarily lead on to the other, but the way that they're doing things 
it kind of does. Um, so the whilst you know, ex, I, I could dine out on this for weeks. An ex programmer, therefore, uh, whilst I'm an ex programmer, um, I recognise the value of building something with code. Equally, I recognise the value of building something where you don't have to encode every single statement that that takes that needs to take place. Mm. So there's huge value in just simplification of certainly the simpler tasks. And there's probably an application of the Pareto principle there, which is, you know, so uh, low-code platforms could fulfill 80% of application requirements. If you want to build something that's very, very similar to what everyone else is doing, you shouldn't have to build it from scratch. So there's that end of the scale. Meanwhile, the second pillar is let's make it more manageable. And I'm seeing, uh, I think we're all seeing a wave towards um, more standardized architectures and then more standardized ways of managing things and then more standardized tooling to enable that management to happen. So the the through no fault of anyone other than it just seems like a, a kind of trend, um, it, it's just the way everyone's going. Um, we're seeing um, uh, the Kubernetes target, if you like, or oh, sorry, uh, container-based microservices target with Kubernetes as the orchestrator. So it's giving a, a focus on the, if there's 5,000 different wet places that your application might end up and the structure it might look, this is like, well, why not use that one? Why not, why not build something using containers and then you can deploy it using Kubernetes, using a, um, a, a vendor solution that plugs into to Kubernetes engine. And then you can redeploy, et cetera, et cetera. And then when someone else comes along, they know what, they recognize it. They, they know what to do with it because they recognize the microservices. They know how to build containers, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of standardization of architecture is taking place at the moment. Mm. Um, we saw last year, 20% um, of enterprises we surveyed were actively uh, deploying Kubernetes. Were a, a much much larger number was actively pursuing the deployment of of, of mm. Kubernetes, and already you know fast forward a year, and uh, I think that the because uh, um, the next thing that comes out of that is things like GitOps, which is um, right you're deploying in that way. How about we standardize how deployment looks, and that's GitOps, mm. uh, and then from that you then go well if we're all going to follow. Uh, GitOps, which open bracket, it's uh, GitOps involves storing configuration information for the deployment in the same place as the code. Mm -hmm. And so, and then you get a an orchestrator to pull the information about how the application should be configured from the same place as the code, in the same way a compiler would. Mm -hmm. So that you're never thinking about will this will this deploy. The deployment engine is doing that for you. And then if there are any changes post that happening, because someone's gone in and tweaked the deployment, then an alarm goes off and says, yeah, you need to fix that. And it needs to go back and, and be um, the configuration information needs to be updated. So that they've got this kind of closed loop thing going in GitOps. So, so that you can run entirely virtualized applications in code and everything's stored in configuration management under Git or on in Git under configuration management, rather. So um, that, that's a really, really positive development. And the 
the result from that then is that vendors across the board think, well, if, if they're doing it, we'll do it. So yeah, you know, WeaveWorks kicked this kind of thing off. Then you've got Microsoft that are really keen, IBM are really keen, loads of other vendors, uh, CodeFresh are really keen, GitLab are really keen. They're all talking about GitOps now. And suddenly GitOps becomes a standard way of doing things, which is fantastic. So that that's kind of um, groundswell stuff. And then from the top down, um, there's a kind of, uh, how to put this politely, a, a kind of oh for crying out loud moment. From a that, was, that was very restrained, actually. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate your... Your thought, um, but um, so f from a manageability perspective, there, there's a point of no return. There's a, there's kind of, we can't carry on going this way in terms of just building more and more things less and less efficiently. And from that kind of need, we're seeing uh, a lot of interest at the moment around manageability capabilities. So that means tools that go to the people overseeing development that then help them specifically identify bottlenecks in development. You know, there's, we're building and building and building and everything's arriving at testing and then testing's really slow. And so it's just ending up with this glut of things that need to be tested. And then we all have to stop for three weeks while testing happens, kind of bottlenecks. Oh. Um, and the, there was a lack of tools to, to um, enable people to, to see that and then know what to do about it. But then um, value stream management's emerged over the past couple of years as a technique, which in layman's layperson's terms, it's kind of let's apply business process optimization to software development. It's like, you know, it's all about spotting if know it, looking at something, working out where its inefficiencies are, and then improving it to the process level, but doing it specifically for software development. So uh, value stream management tools, a lot of them like IBM's urban code velocity, it shows everything as little bubbles in spheres moving through. So you can actually see the bubbles kind of one sphere full of little bubbles and the next sphere empty. And you kind of go, ah, oh, well, we've got a bottleneck between those two spheres. So very easy visual mechanisms for managers and, and uh, um, uh, uh, more senior roles to, to see where they need to and how they need to improve things. And other tools like TaskTop are, are coming uh, and thinking of things like our developers happy, you know, we've, we've got everyone working really well, but the, everyone's super stressed. This can't be right. So, you know, just basic, um, stress levels can also be monitored. Uh, and then the, the masterclass of value stream management is great. We've got everything working super efficiently, but the results are useless. So we've delivered 3000 functions over the past six months, but no one wants them. And uh, that's not increased our sales. That's not uh, increased our levels of customer satisfaction. And it's just a bunch of shelfware. So the masterclass of value stream management is saying, are we building things of value? Are we delivering things of value? And then are people getting value out of them? Um, and uh, so, yeah, VSM, value stream management, is clearly a big thing at the moment because you can tell because suddenly everyone's trying to differentiate. So it's not value stream management, it's value stream insights. That's far more important. And you know when people start playing these marketing games that it's you know the bandwagon is well and truly rolling, and we're seeing other aspects of that kind of thing. We're seeing uh, a growth of things like policy as code, infrastructure as code, management and testing. Um, but overall, and the whole shift left and DevSecOps and and that kind of thing. But overall, it's all about how we can stop worrying about 
doing things. We're doing things fine, or we're not. But you know, we can always improve there. But that stuff's uh, can can work can look after itself for a bit. How about we focus on how we manage it, how we secure it, how we uh, how we de-risk it, how we how we make sure that we're delivering the right the right stuff out there. That's that's where a lot of attention is going. So kind of looking there are a couple of things that kind of struck me within that i mean what you're saying is obviously one of the one of the things about the developer community is they do like to get in about the weeds of the code so it's not surprising that we're seeing all these sort of like splinter factions of codes and platforms and you know this variety of different options for people to to code in for from that perspective um, I, I was going to ask about the you know the low code, no code. I mean, is this the you know, the, the death knell for developers? I'm sure not. Um, but it sounds that. But it sounds like there's more of this move to what I would describe in in my sort of non-developer um, world as sort of building blocks for products, software products, and that if you're using the same bricks, you're going to you know just have a foundation that would be the same across a number of different things, or am I oversimplifying things there? You're definitely not. And I think that um, there's a number of philosophical mistakes people always make about software. One is... Oh, this is getting very deep now, John. No, it's, 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 easy. I'm going to feel... It, 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 I'm going to feel of the Greek philosophers now. It shouldn't, but it, it, it's... Uh, in, in, in Greek terms, it is a dilemma. It's, it, it's two yeah. conflicting theories. Um, one is that things will inevitably get simpler and simpler, and they don't. Software has stayed as complex as it's always been because there's always different ways you can write things. There's new languages you can produce. There's new platforms you can put things on. There's market differentiation that uh, yeah, right now with Internet of Things and uh, all the different ways that that's driving new chipsets and you know, all the things around AI and, and how that's driving new ways of data collection and collection and the way that architectures are fragmenting um, from edge to cloud. But it's that's that's norm. You know, the, the norm is uh, an, an increasingly exponential. Uh, rise in complexity, um, and you know, throw in Moore's law and, and everything else. It, that's always going to be the case. And then back to back with that is, it's always going to be the case that you can stop, think, prioritize, build on existing platforms, look for commonalities, look for modularization. And this is going right back to 1975 and Jordan and Constantine theories of, uh, and this is what good uh, container-based and microservices-based architectures build on. Uh, getting that level right, which is between application level and you know, very small bits of component level, there's a level in between, uh, which we're currently calling, calling microservices, mm. which if you manage those, you will be in a lot stronger position than if you try and manage applications, which are too big and cumbersome, and if you try and manage all the little bitty bitty bits, which are too small and fragmented. So that's always the case. Um, so to your point, low, low code is essentially giving us that middle level. It's giving us mm. platforms. Um, I had some fascinating conversations when we kicked off the low code report with various end user companies. Mm -hmm. And one said, and it wasn't even that big a company, but they said they got so much more value when they actually engaged 
uh, with the vendor and then with the vendor's development teams. And I had this minor epiphany as, as the, the person was talking about how the development never goes away. It's just, it's, it's kind of another form of outsourcing. And when you're speaking to developers and setting priorities and saying, well, that's not really going to work for us, but this might, and so on, then you will get a more solid platform. There isn't this kind of, I think we're always looking for kind of mummy and daddy to sort everything out for us and uh, all the problems will go away. But that, that doesn't exist. It's about you know, ultimately taking responsibility for what happens within the code and then working with the vendors in that case uh, and the developers to make the code work for you. That That's always going to be the case at the same time as making it a platform rather than making it um, build it from scratch every time. Uh, yeah, or as I like to say, don't reinvent the wheel because effectively sometimes that's what they're doing. They're doing exactly the same thing, but just in a slightly different way. And reinventing, re, yeah, getting, yeah, rebuilding the cartwheel, creating the spokes, et cetera, et cetera. That, you don't need to do that. <laughs> you mm. literally can take a wheel and use it. Um, and, and people seem to struggle with the notion of either everything's going to be automagical or you need to build it from scratch. And the answer is always neither. It's about getting that level of modularization right. But as you say, then you should focus on the things that you can control. It does feel a little bit like the, the things that make sense to standardize on and the things that where and and partly I feel we're obviously you know looking very much at this from a startup perspective, people like to, you know, do it in a better way. You know, because I think it's it's perhaps not as good as it could be. Mm -hmm. um, being driven somewhat by the view of perfection. Also, you know, if you have people who are on your platform and and they move away from somebody else's, that means you've captured that audience away from whatever the one of the competitors' um, platforms or code languages is, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but that isn't necessarily, you know, that makes you what you're trying to do a lot harder because you're pulling people away from something and you have to have something quite compelling to do that because of the schools and, and such like around that to do I it. I think that there, there's there, some, something I, I, I want to be absolutely clear. Software development is still super hard um, mm. and um, people building software. That we, we talk about DevOps being kind of the future of CICD and we talk about value stream management being the future of DevOps. We talk about, no, it's not just value stream management anymore it's value stream insights and value stream platforms and blah 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 and then meanwhile the developers and engineers and managers are sitting in companies scratching their heads going hang on we can't even get our build processes right yet you're over there rushing off over the hill with some brand new concept like a cuckoo with a diamond in your hand and we're just trying to build stuff uh which in the parlance yeah ci we're just trying to oh create um build systems such that we can build it today change it build it tomorrow and do that really really fast uh, and so do that continuous integration and continuous deployment thing and we as an industry are failing our uh end user organizations if we're rushing off with the latest and greatest next thing and saying, well, it's all low code these days, isn't it? It's uh, you know, we don't need to worry about that stuff anymore. 
Uh, no, we absolutely do. And we need to help organizations in the real world who are still struggling with the basics of, and basics not as in, oh, it's so simple, why haven't you got the hang of it? But basics mm -hmm. as in the fundamental foundational elements of, of, of getting this stuff right, which are very, very hard to get right. Um, we're not doing anyone any favors by rushing off with architectures and, and not helping the engineers, if you like. So, so that that's there. There you go. I'll, I'll shut up there. But it, I, oh, no, it's too fascinating. I think about it more because I've got some friends who are developers, like you know, on the job these days. Um, and it kind of makes me think about some of the other stuff you were talking about. I was quite fascinated with these bubbles, though. I like this management bubble. Oh, the bubbles, yeah. They look like that. That sounds great. And the empty bubble is not good. But I was just thinking of, you know, people that I know who are developers and somebody goes to them, why is this bubble empty? And they go, oh, you know, it's not, it's the management element of it. Also, you need to be able to understand what's actually going on and see the bigger picture around it all. So, I mean, obviously you've, you've presented it in a very simple, you know, the simple, I'm sure it's not simple as quite that. Um, picture with the words, so. Indeed, indeed. Well, we like the bubble stuff. And then there was something else you referred to. And I thought, well, that sounds a little bit like living in a bubble. There's a lot of bubbles going on. So this yeah, is kind yeah. of. I was thinking about bubble tea, to be honest. I was thinking you could sit and have a cup of bubble tea as you're, um, as you're watching the bubbles go by in your little bubble, you know. <laughs> Makes you think of those goldfish bowl um, offices well, yesteryear. 100%. Absolutely. So a, que a question you yeah. had, by the way, which uh, I'll just, because I forgot to answer it earlier, so I'll say mm -hmm. it quickly and then you can say what you can say. Is so. Where are the opportunities here mm. for startups? Yeah. So I've, I've thought of an answer. Don't, don't feel like you have to go quickly unless you've got you know other plans. No, no, no. Go for it. So um, the answer to that is that we're definitely in the manageability aspects, and where you mentioned um, that the. Um, uh, developers see opportunities within their own companies and then and then build out from there because they you know companies born of mm. frustration if you like and honeycomb's a great example in the observability and it ops and ai ops space um uh, which was born out of uh, facebook developers um mm. and um, the uh, there's a company i'm thinking of called zen hub that's uh, started building a kind of portal onto GitHub uh, in terms of um, throughput and flow and project management and agile, agile um, feature management and so on. Hmm. Uh, that was that was also born out of hang on, we need to sort this out. And and so that that kind of building on, on manageability is 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 really true. But the other the other thing that I was thinking of as you're talking about low code hmm. was. As we're talking about uh, not doing it all from scratch, etc., yeah. verticalized solutions, by which I mean solutions for retail, solutions for healthcare, mm -hmm. solutions for manufacturing, the vertical sector focused. Yeah, yeah, so low code for manufacturing, low code for retail, low code for whatever. Um, linking in with um, data management for those um, areas. So either going very vertical like that. All going very horizontal, low code for video, low code for big data, low code, et cetera. 
Oh. Uh, it, it's not just low code, but it, there's something for something. Uh, at the moment, we're still very much building generic platforms. Oh. Uh, and all, although many low code vendors have got kind of more focus than oh. they might put on their websites, so some might be more mobile oriented, some might be more um, forms and workflow oriented, uh, some might be uh, uh, focused specifically on. It might be low code, but you can still get very, very, very big applications mm. on the back of low code. So some might be focused on that market, um, mm. but it's still kind of generic platforms. No one, no one's locking down particularly on the legal profession or um, any of the verticals I've mentioned or any of the horizontals I've mentioned. So I'd say a big opportunity for startups is to mm. uh, create templated solutions for. For, for for sectors or for for use cases, definitely. Why do you think those haven't been tapped into yet? Do you think it's because they're you know you'd need somebody who's been in that market to go? There's a gap here vertically, or do you think they just go? Oh, look, this is something. Are they all tending to go a little bit more tech oriented rather than sector oriented? Or, um. I think it's the nature of platforms, the nature of differentiation to an extent. Mm. Uh, however, however much you want to be specialized, you have to start by building a foundational platform. Right. And if you do it right, it's going to be generic. So, you know, um, yeah. uh, and otherwise you're just building a kind of one-off solution for a, for a tiny part of the industry. There, there, there's an element which, um, let's face it, a, a strong strong chance of being true that uh, I just don't know about those platforms. So there might be mm. a little low-code for legal platform that's fantastically well-known in Wisconsin. All the lawyers are using it. All the paralegals are using it. No one outside of Wisconsin's heard of it. Um, Yet. But they will be now Googling that, and that's a legal Low-code Wisconsin for legal, as I am just about to put .com in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Parallel um, code. Exactly. Yeah. Who said it was low-code? I had to put, type load stuff in there. Yeah. Um, but, it, yeah, I mean, it, it is, a, as you say, because if, if they are focused on that particular sector, why would they be bothering John Collins to brief you? Because you're going to be talking more about the tech rather than, and, and they're going to be looking at tapping into those those contacts who are in IT and mm. worried about software in the legal world, or partnering with you know people who already service those those vertical sectors. And, and there there are going to be a lot of point solutions. I mean, yeah, we know this to be true. I've been around the block enough to to know that um, in retail or in manufacturing or whatever, there'll be one company that's still the provider of one little bit of software that does one specific thing. Uh, the, the other part of the answer, though, comes from that, which is you can't scale a, a, a software vendor by being uh, a point solution. Um, and so if you want to create a platform for the world, the way to do it is to build uh, a set of capabilities that aren't specific uh, mm. and then to build uh, policy-based uh, templates that enable those capabilities to be used. So I wouldn't be building a low-code for legal solution. I would be building a low-code solution, and then I would be building a this is how to this is a set of cap this is a set of templates or policies or whatever it is that enable it to be used 
specifically in the legal profession. That's that's how I'd architect it. Um, mm. And then from uh, going to market, you might well partner with somebody who's already providing solutions into that marketplace. Yeah, and, and then how was the white label thing for them, perhaps? Yeah. Then you find that legal is actually just uh, a content problem. So then you mm. go into other content-oriented uh, yeah. industries, uh, you know, safety-critical systems or whatever it is, and, and, and then you're duking it out with the people that went came arrived in that space from the other direction. Um, it was ever thus. Yeah. So we've talked about low-code. What about no-code? How's that going to, to factor um, in? It's a good question. Because that, um, so that sounds a little bit harder to, to get, was for me to get my head around at least. I can get a low code because that kind of work that I can I can get the logic of that. I'm not quite sure how I get where I go with no code, so I'm not I don't know enough about it. So please enlighten me, John. Well, you you're you're in uh, safe territory because a lot of analysts don't know how to get their heads around it either. So yay, still the waiting. When when we did our report on uh, low code, it was. Um, and I was, I'm using low code as a kind of generic term to mean low code slash no code um, yeah. as I'm talking about it. And yeah. I haven't been specific enough. And uh, my, my bad if someone was thinking, oh, it doesn't mean low code. It doesn't mean no code. I, I just wasn't. I just wasn't tacking on the slash no code bit on the end of it. Uh, when we put a report together, uh, it was low code slash no code. We combined the two different types of vendors. Right. Uh, as we reviewed that and we thought about it a bit more, probably this time next year we'll do two separate reports. Mm -hmm. um, one on the low-code side of things, which tends to be, uh, it, it's all about use case. Mm -hmm. you, you'd use low-code if you want to prototype something, you want to build it quick, and then you're going to want to customize it and kind of make it more um, enterprise-y and mission-critical from that point. Um, and, uh, so it would, it's possible that the, the term used is citizen developers. So you might have someone in the business that's able to kind of throw to something together, um, uh, relatively quickly, uh, uh, it, maybe someone like me who's uh, not touched, uh, computers for a while that can kind of go, oh, well, I get the hang of this. Yeah. Et cetera. And, and then you can say, so you can build a front end, you can kind of tack it into a back end. you can put some APIs in. And you've got something and then you can start building on it. And then where that becomes really uh, powerful is then you get the development teams in behind it and uh, they start building in the, the extra security features and the more detailed functionality in the business. So it's a proof of concept type of scenario. That I mean, there's about that. That's uh, lo low code gives you a, a more straightforward on-ramp to mm. a full scale application. And the, the resulting full-scale application will be a hybrid of low-code and full-code, probably. Yeah. With obviously, there's a spectrum of things. Whereas no-code tends to be for something that is always going to stay relatively small. So mm -hmm. it's literally a drag-and-drop interface. You pull a few bits together that enable uh, some data to come in here. It goes through this, 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 and it pops out the other side, and then so and so is informed, and it responds to this, and uh, um, uh, yeah, Zapier-like uh, triggers an event that goes into some other system, etc. But the end result will tend to stay pretty much what you just built, uh, and so it's so it's a it's a it's a small 
part of a bigger cog, basically, that's going to be static. It's just going to evolve with the stuff around it. It's not going to change the world. It's just going to to do that job. Correct. And obviously these things are, there's always going to be an exception to prove the rule. And well, obviously yeah. I'm putting myself, and, and even as I say it. But you can say I said that. You have nothing yeah. to do with that. I just made that bit up. I just talked all over you. You're spot on, and the the truth the truth is that there will always be something that proves any of these kind of fixed definitions wrong because Ooh. the nature of software is to to play with the boundaries. So, um, uh, I would say you will never get a low code, sorry, a no code result turn into a full-scale enterprise application. Reality is that's highly unlikely. It's most likely to be some little thing that you produce that delivers on a certain need. It delivers a little mobile app. And maybe it becomes exceedingly useful as that little mobile app, but it doesn't ever kind of transmogrify from a little mobile app and become your uh, pan enterprise at warehousing system with full account. Yeah, but maybe it becomes. Now I'm obsessed with what's happening to no code here. I don't want him to not go anywhere. He's got to have some prospects. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. But he he would become part of a low code project, and then he can take over the world. He or she or they. But it could. It, you you could have a music analogy. It could be that one hit wonder or three hit wonder. It's kung fu fighting. Uh, exactly. It's the Kung Fu fighter. It, it it goes out there, it changes the world in its little way, and everyone will remember it forever. So it's got huge success. But it's not like ACDC, where every year there'll be yet another... It's not scalable from that mm. point of view. It, it's not a machine. It's not, it's not something that will last the decades and evolve and become a whole brand, um, etc., it will remain kung fu fighting. I love a bit of kung fu fighting, but then again, I am a bit more ACDC myself. So, um, yeah. I'm going to have a rock check, but I should have worn my red jacket, red leather jacket, if I don't know, you're going to start talking about ACDC. Mm-hmm. So that's all right. I forgive you. But that. everyone like kung fu fighting. They do. Well, everybody, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to stop myself. I will start singing. So moving quickly on. Um, you know, you touched upon Agile as well, and this well-being stuff. Mm. So this is really curious. I was not expecting you to say that, so I always love it when it's a bit of a surprise. Um, and obviously listening to Kung Fu Fighting or ACDC probably will help raise people's mood. So we can maybe link into, you know, music, helping with well-being. I certainly feel better when I've got the radio on. And although, uh, other than when I'm talking to you, clearly, because I'm very happy now. But um, what what's this all about? Are we are we saying that happy happy developers make better code? Is this what we're finding? I'm not say better. Shall we say better is probably the wrong word? Shall we say? Because the thing is, I mean, you talked about the stress element. I mean, everybody knows, particularly in startups, if you look at developers in startups, because there's a huge amount of pressure in a very small team, that type of thing, where you're, you're potentially getting burnout. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's not going to be good because then you lose the continuity from that person. Obviously it's not good on a personal level. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's too that mild. Um, certainly from from that perspective, you know, there's been lots of talk about it. A lot of developers who, you know, have been in teams are now a lot more remote. It, Absolutely. Is, is all of this coming to a bit of a head, really? I mean, the, the pandemic obviously has been very challenging for everybody. And I think, you know, mental health is quite rightly as one you know, positive that we could see out of it has become much more of a conversation piece because it's, we now have that that element of shared, you know, uh-huh. um, stress around one common thing. You know, obviously it's impacted people in lots and lots of different ways. Some people, you know, there's been positive effects, some a mixture of both, and obviously some very, very negative. But... Tell, tell us more about this whole stress conversation. And, well, it's sharp. And, 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 and... I mean, there, there's so much to unpack and probably we've only got five minutes left. So um, the as someone who's experienced a lot of work stress in his time, so I had to have counselling and, and everything yeah. else. Um, and uh, so I've done my time, if, if you like. Uh, that. I think that there's a lot to unpack. If we start from the beginning, the very glib thing anyone can say is that uh, it's better to have a uh, a more positive working environment. That That's an easy thing to say. But then equally, it's an easy thing to forget. And it's mm-hmm. not a notion that everyone will share. So, you know, a bleeding heart liberal can say something like that. And then... Uh, mm-hmm. The, the accountants come in, sorry, accountants, and and say, right, we want everyone to, you know, productivity is our only metric. Uh, how many hours were you at you were you at your desk? How many function points did you deliver? How many features did you create, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. How many, the KPI uh, focus and the very the outlook uh, and outlook. and all that immediately kind of vanishes into thin air. I I think that there's there's an opportunity to change the language. Um, and there's an opportunity to actually understand what people bring. There's not even a single notion of something called the programmer, like this code. We're not all massively engineering focused. Uh, you know, there's, um, there's artists and there's scientists mixed together in the notion of programming and the whole debate over, is it real engineers or is it artisan, et cetera, et cetera. Some are true craftspeople. Some are absolutely dyed in, dyed in the wool mathematicians, uh, and so it doesn't make sense to to kind of lump them all together uh, and say, "Well, we're trying to make them all happy." And, and then equally, we're all um, we've all got tendencies towards laziness, and uh, uh, yeah, reality check is if if you judge someone on the number of pull requests they do a day, they're going to do more pull requests. Do they need to? Not necessarily. If you're judging someone on the number of uh, um, Things they've taken out of uh, Jira and uh, and and fixed and redeployed, they're going to pick the easy ones because then they'll be judged on that. So we, we we as a race are very susceptible to respond to how we're being judged. So mm. there's there's so many factors to take into account. I would be particularly given what you just mentioned about home working and remote working and how that's obviously changed. Mm. We need to change the language and structure around how we judge success uh we need to be giving people the well the wherewithal to to perform in a way that they are capable and that doesn't necessarily mean 
uh, you know, what one one set of rules. Uh, yeah, even if it goes down to if you want to move outside neuro neurotypical kind of thinking, and uh, then you want to think about you know bringing in people with disabilities and and so on and so forth. Um, it's going to have to be about how we create teams with common goals, with impetus, mm. with shared desires and aspiration, uh, with trust. Trust is such a huge element and, and with very strong cohesion within the groups. Mm. And will that create more success? Possibly not in the short term. But will it create more long-term sustainability? I absolutely believe that. Um, mm. So, so yeah, we, we, but obviously, I've just thrown in a whole bunch of psychobabble. Um, and how do you measure that? How do you make that true? How do you fit it into the tooling? Uh, how do you stop people from reverting to type? Um, it's something I call the guru's dilemma, where you know you get an agile consultant goes into a place. Gets it all sorted. Gets everyone, uh, yeah, um, uh, doing great um, yeah, scrums and uh, yeah, daily stand-ups so that everything's working really. Then they go away, and six months later, everyone's reverted back to the way they used to do stuff. Well, it's like fine-tuning a car, though, isn't it? If I want to chuck another analogy in, you know, wear and tear, day-to-day, -day, you know, use. You need to pop it back in the shop for a bit. It absolutely is, and I, I don't think there's any substitute for. Um, some really good old-fashioned uh, team-based approaches such as listening, um, servant leadership, um, yeah, leading from the middle, essentially, um, and uh, um, clarity of communication and, and those kinds of things. So the, the, the danger that we've got at the moment with uh, this whole uh, DevOps thing is it's all continuous, continuous, continuous. It's a need for speed. And I don't actually think that's particularly healthy because we're creating speed, again, with the car analogy, at the detriment of self-maintenance and uh, the, you know, the need for pit stops. Yeah. So, and also, are you going in the right direction? Gosh, we can get this motoring analogy going for quite, we can keep this going for a while. But yeah. there's lots of things about speed, isn't it? But if you're going in the wrong direction, it's not really that helpful, is it? You want to make sure you've got... And, and, and that, just by, you know, from the feedback loop, you know, you, you just, you're not going to get the right feedback of moving things if you look at the whole scrum and, you know, the, the sprint, sorry, not scrum, the sprints now. I'm mixing up my uh, agile terms there, but the sprint sort of idea, I mean... Yeah, but in two weeks, you're not necessarily going to get what you need from I mean, that, I, I, where the function should go. It's reasonably standard to hear from organizations, yeah, we do daily stand-ups, but we don't really talk about what we're going to deliver. Or, yeah, we we, we do, we we pay, li essentially the same, we pay lip service to whatever methodology is currently famous, but we still don't do things right. And... To me, that holds the, the the answer to everything or the question that everything should be answered. It doesn't matter what terminology you're applying. It doesn't matter if you're safe, agile, or if you're whatever, um, or if you're using value stream management best practice, or you've got the DORA metrics, or what, what really, really matters is not whether or not you're using the right terminology or whether you're measuring the things that the industry sees as useful to measure. It's whether you've actually got a fully able... Uh, fully able from a, a delivery perspective team mm. 
um, within which uh, there's there's confidence and trust uh, across and that level of cohesion across team members. So that's more important than anything. Well, it'd be interesting to see what kind of um, startup angles there may be within that over the next sort of decade. So, um, timing wise, anything you'd like to to say to wrap things up, John? Because obviously we're looking, and you know, this is a big topic, and and we've kind of darted into to to territory that I wouldn't normally let you have got away with. But because I think that DevOps is such a huge part for all of the tech startups that we're, you know, that we I wouldn't say represent because that's not the right word, but um, that are in our ecosystem it's just interesting because it is really you know whether you're in a startup whether you're in a big enterprise or if you're developing almost that sort of bubble within a bubble if we want to keep with the bubbles is like i'm in devops i need tools to create a tool to help people in devops in an enterprise environment it's kind of that it's so it's like devops squared almost mm. potentially it's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. Any particular sort of last thoughts on what the next decade could bring? It sounds like it's going to be a really interesting time, though. You know, things move really quickly, and then they also move quite slowly mm-hmm. uh, as a tide, if that's if that's possible. But yeah. yeah. To to be fair, we're never going to fix the human race, and nor should we. It's you know, the, the, we, we perfectly imperfect. Perfectly imperfect. I, I actually um, wrote a song called "Perfectly Illogical," which uh, is, is very fitting there. Uh, very, that was very DevOps. That is. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a copy. Oh, brilliant! But um, I am a great believer. Just thinking through as you were speaking, there, I was thinking, well, mm-hmm. you know, what would I add? I'm a great believer in um, visibility uh, in order to to make decisions. And and the old, if you can't measure, you can't manage, uh, Mm. is absolutely true. But equally, I now am, it's something I learned a long, long time ago back when I was a programmer, but uh, it, it kind of has stayed on the surface when other things have descended below. Uh, and it's the, the notion of the win-win. So if we're going to get measurement right, all that we're really ever doing when we're building things is trying to deliver value to, to another participant. And it's the nature of entrepreneurism. It's the nature of startup. Mm-hmm. It's the nature of everything we do. We're, we're trying to get value to other people and we're trying to get value to ourselves as a kind of, um, I'll give you this, you give me that. Um, the reward. And, yeah. And so something that, we know isn't true when we see it is when uh we're giving more than we get uh and what right now i think there's a huge opportunity to create tools that we need and we're seeing it already in the emergence of employee experience kind of platforms Mm. Um, i do believe that we'll see a lot of these fragmented tool sets i I think one of the uh, opportunities for startups is to just be some doesn't matter if you're a feature company because uh, the bigger platforms are going to need to build in those features. So we're going to see a lot of acquisition over the next couple of years. Um, and what I'd like to see is that the the win-win notion is is built into those platforms, which uh, to to use a bit of uh, consultancy jargon, um, 
at stakeholder value. So if we go around all the different stakeholders, be it a programmer, be it a customer, be it a manager, be it the company, whoever it is, what are they getting out of it? Mm. And the job is, and the tools can give us that information, the job is to know that everyone's gaining mm. proportionately from whatever they're putting in. And so th that's what I see as a, uh, not so much an opportunity for startups, but where I would like to see these platforms uh, developing and, and delivering. Brilliant stuff. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Well, hopefully we can catch up in person again soon. Yeah, you, you never know. You never know. Fantastic. Cool. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining us here on the Tackle Fire podcast with John Collins from Gigo. And uh, I'm Rose Ross, who's the founder and chief trailblazer at Tech Trailblazers. You can catch more from Gigo. Um, for us on our platform, which is www.techtrailblaze.com or follow us on Twitter at Tech Trailblaze or find us on LinkedIn. Thanks again, John. No problem. Thank you.